Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Gray Mirror, a new podcast from MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative on Technology, Society, and Ethics, where we look at both the positive and negative impacts of technology. Today, I interview Renee DeRista about our digital information ecosystem. Renee is the director of research at a cybersecurity company called New Knowledge, the head of policy at the nonprofit Data for Democracy, and she's also a 2018 Mozilla Fellow, a Harvard Berkman Klein affiliate, a founding advisor for the Center for Humane Technology, and a frequent contributor to Urban Farm. So she's got a good, a great background and perfect um, to chat about digital information ecosystems. And we chat because she just released two exciting reports on a Russian disinformation campaign, and then also this wide look uh, on Urban Farm about our digital information ecosystem. Ecosystem. So we chat about those two primary things in the episode. And on the first point, I just want to say, I mean, this is a crazy thing. So it's a um, this Russian disinformation campaign. They spent Russia spent about 10 to 17 million on it. You know, 10.4 million tweets, Facebook posts reaching 126 million people. It's pretty big. Um, and the key thing when you're listening to it is to say, hey, we're in this new era of non-institutional and now distributed trust, where the trust is, is baked into the network. Um, and so this Russian agency, they can build trust, and they do it primarily around identity, whether it's Texas or black or queer, whatever whatever identities they're looking to to build. And then they leverage that trust um, for whatever their, their ends are. And in their case, it's to kind of create polarization. And so that's what, what Renee and I chat about. And the key thing as you're listening is to think, and when you're thinking about the ecosystem in general, the digital information ecosystem is, A, where and how is trust being built? So for something like Uber, it's being built with like driver's ratings. Um, and then later, how do does that company or that institution leverage that trust? So if Russia is leveraging it for polarization, someone like Uber is leveraging it kind of for profit, um, so more people take rides. Um, and the other thing to think about here is one of the biggest attack vectors for trust is identity, um, is your own identity. And so in general, if you can keep your identity identity small and realize when people are kind of leveraging in-group and out-group dynamics for your trust, that'll be kind of crucial for navigating the information ecosystem. So that's one thing we talked about is this Russian disinformation campaign. It's pretty interesting. Okay, so in the second half of the episode, we chat about kind of a more macro take on what's happening with our information ecosystem. And this is another really good conversation, and there's a lot in here, but I just want to highlight kind of three things. The first is that it, to contextualize where Renee and I's conversation exists within the realm of kind of technological societal loops in the world, you should think about, okay, hey, what's happening based off of the internet, based off of Web 2.0, based off of Google and Facebook and these big aggregators? And when you think about that, Renee and I are chatting about essentially our sense-making and our information ecosystems. Um, and, and how do we determine what is true and how do you know uh, institutions leverage this new kinds of distributed trust for their own means and their own ends. And remember that that's different than, when you think about Google and Amazon and Facebook, that's different than the incentive structures and the affordances of these massive information aggregators. So that's stuff like surveillance capitalism and addiction capitalism and these new aggregator-based monopolies and antitrust. That's kind of two big buckets here. A, how are institutions and authoritarian regimes kind of leveraging this new information and distributed trust ecosystem? And second, how what are kind of the natural, kind of almost inevitable um, incentive structures of these new aggregators and how do they lead to things like surveillance capitalism? So we don't really chat about the second one. We don't chat about that much about surveillance capitalism. We mostly chat about the first one, which is how institutions are leveraging distributed trust. <laughs> so that's point number one. 
Point number two is, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, Renee brings up how our information ecosystem relates to free speech, and she claims that liberal democratic societies have an asymmetric vulnerability to these kinds of attacks. Um, And I agree, and it's because, you know, they say, hey, if we want to curate out the things that are bad, well, a free speech society says, no, 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 you can't curate anything out. We need free speech. Um, and there's the thing to remember here, and as you're listening, is to say, hey, free speech is a heuristic. It's a it's a good kind of virtue to have. It's good, like, from a deontological perspective. It's a good thing. It's a good means to have, but it's not an end, you know? The end is is good outcomes. And so this is why you can't say fire in a crowded theater if a bunch of people die. Um, and so similarly, we should be thinking about free speech on these platforms on the internet and say, hey, we might need to decrease um, free speech or think differently about free speech in order to get better outcomes for society. So um, that's the second point. And then the third piece here is really thinking about the responsibility borne by the tech platforms themselves versus the consumers. And Renee, uh, and I kind of disagree on this, um, and I, I most, she, she's more of a pro, um, you know, kind of a, uh, regulating the tech platforms, and I'm pro uh, consumers and kind of media literacy. And so I think short term, I agree with Renee that these platforms need to change, but long term, no matter what, we as individuals in society need to take a deep responsibility for, you know, media literacy to cope with our newly highly weaponizable information environment. Um, and so I think short-term platform regulation is good and long-term uh, we need everybody to have uh, very uh, deep and nuanced understandings of how trust is built um, so that when uh, aggregator platforms try to leverage it in various ways, you are prepared against it. So with that, it's a cool episode and hope you enjoy today's episode with Renee. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Gray Mirror. Renee, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to dive in. So before we we chat about some of your recent pieces, um, I want to ask a more macro general question, which is just how do you think about the positive and negative impacts of technology on society? Kind of very general, very abstract. How do you think about that? Uh, I've been in tech my whole life. I I learned to code when I was nine. You know, I've... uh, been on the internet on AOL when it started. I I really feel like I have I don't remember a time in my adult life when I wasn't constantly connected to the internet. I love Twitter. I love the people I've met on Twitter. I think at the same time though, a lot of um, a lot of it, it's it's increasingly impossible to ignore that there have been significant negative impacts that have come about, particularly as the social ecosystem has expanded and become. Uh, it's gone from being about personal connections to being really the dominant information transmission ecosystem. It's where people get their news. It's where people find new things to uh, to connect with. It's increasingly political. So as we have this new ecosystem, I think that some of the things that it was designed for don't necessarily lend themselves to the best possible um, to, to providing the best possible platform for connecting people. Ironically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's great. I think that there's, um, as you say, the t- Twitter is so lovely, and as you say, it, it can be so lovely. And loving the people you've met on Twitter, and that's so great. And as you say, I think you're really good to call it something like the dominant information transmission ecosystem. You know that that really gets to this idea that this is this new information medium, and how does that? What are the negative impacts of that as well? So let's kind of dive into that. And you, just like these last couple of weeks, you've released two very interesting articles about this or, or projects. One is um, this 
this specific disinformation report that you wrote for New Knowledge about um, the Internet Research Agency and some of these uh, bots and, and Russian hacking stuff that, that was put into our information ecosystem. And then the other one is kind of a step back um, to the digital, this thing called the Digital Maginot Line, which is kind of a more macro take on our information infrastructure. So let's kind of break the podcast into those two pieces and start with the first one. So could you kind of just give an overview on what this inf- disinformation report was uh, for our listeners? Sure. So the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, received a collection of documents from Facebook, Twitter, and Alphabet uh, sometime late in 2017, maybe September, October 2017. They were they requested these documents around the time that what we can call kind of the tech hearings started, the collection of congressional inquiries uh, across committees, intelligence, judiciary, uh, the Senate, the House, uh, as the investigation into what happened particularly with regard to election 2016, but also more broadly, what is the role of, uh, of social media companies in information transmission? A lot of inquiries about censorship, a lot of inquiries about um, ad buys, a lot of inquiries about privacy. So the cluster of inquiries related to the Russia investigation uh, was run through the Intelligence Committee. They gathered a collection of documents, and then they were looking for outside experts to help them analyze these documents. Uh, it was about 400 gigs worth of stuff. It was presented in uh, kind of a myriad collection of formats. There were <laughs> the data wasn't perfectly clean. No, what? <laughs> there were some PDFs in there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there were actually a hell of a lot of PDFs in there, um, and it was. Uh, it, it took. I mean, honestly, it took the team. Um, I worked with uh, seven people. I think it took us about a month and a half to get it into. A workable state in a you know in a, in a proper database format, so we could query with standardized dates and um, account names, and uh, it, it was it was it was not a small endeavor. Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons why the Senate Intelligence Committee, to its credit, recognized that um, while they are experts in uh, in the operation itself, looking at the technical forensics was not necessarily going to be their strong suit. Got it. Yeah. And so it was something, it was this big 400 gigabyte thing that was given to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And then they outsourced kind of um, some of the research work to uh, you all at New Knowledge and various folks to say, hey, can you kind of um, give us a report of this knowledge? And was it this report that you made, there's like online, you can find like a white paper and also um, kind of like a PowerPoint or a slide deck presentation. Um, was that a report that then you gave to the Senate Intelligence Committee? Or is this kind of, um, was this after, is this, um, you know, distinct from that? No, I, I communicated with the committee throughout the investigation. And uh, so the way that they structured this was they had us do one, and then they had uh, uh, Graphica and Oxford were kind of a joint team uh, that wrote up the other report. So they wanted to have two independent sets of experts looking at it. Uh, we were not to communicate with each other. You know, it was it was supposed to be, um, we, we read their findings when they were put out publicly on the same day that ours were. Uh, so the, the goal of that, I think, was to ensure that there would be um, two distinct reports so that, you know, hopefully to get away from allegations of like bias or quality or, you know, the usual things that anytime you release a political report kind of uh, come out of the woodwork. Um, So that was the, uh, so the, the goal was to kind of quantitatively and qualitatively communicate to the committee what was in the data set. Um, to look at how it synced up with, um, you know, with, with, with what was known, like with the kind of um, 
public knowledge that came from like tech company executive statements and things like that. So uh, what, you know, was this, uh, was what they said about what happened an accurate representation of, of what was in the data set was kind of a component of it. Um, to what, ex- you know, how could we potentially quantify like what groups had been impacted? And then were there questions for further research or further investigation by the committee uh, or by, um, you know, there's other teams that are looking at this, the FBI and others to, uh, you know, how, how did all of these pieces of information fit together? Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And, and just as a, I mean, it's a, the data set's pretty crazy. It's, you know, it's 10 million tweets, over a thousand YouTube videos, um, you know, more than a uh, hundred thousand Instagram posts reaching 20 million people and over 60,000 Facebook posts reaching 126 million people. So this is like, you know, a Russia disinformation campaign um, through this internet research agency and it, it, it hit all of our our digital lives in some way. So I guess, could you tell us what are the big um, takeaways, I guess, from, from this report? So it is a massive amount of content. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not- Give me it's just one awful. sentence. You're allowed one sentence. No, no. <laughs> so, well, it speaks to, um, so I don't even think it's all of the content because I think that it's time bounded. Uh, there were pages that were alluded to in Adrian Chen's report. Uh, he wrote this excellent article for- Uh, the New York Times Magazine, I believe it was maybe called The Agency, about the troll farm itself. And that was back in 2015, his article came out. And he has pages that are mentioned in there that actually weren't in this data set. So I think that there, this is uh, kind of a time-bounded look over a two-year period, really, from 2015, January 2015, through to uh, to when the committee requested the data, which was in 2017, looking at a multi-year effort to develop relationships and form um, communities with uh, with American citizens. So I think there's a lot of focus on election 2016. Did it impact the election? You know, the, that's kind of the, the question that everyone wants answered. But the broader scope of it was much bigger than election 2016. And I think you hear in the media, it's been reported as, oh, they were sowing societal division. That's true. But what we were able to get as we looked at all of the organic posts Uh, And one thing that we had that no one else had was, you know, the visual memes were out there. So you could see the images they put out, things that were kind of like, you know, breadcrumbs left across the Internet. But we also had the copy that they wrote around those memes. Um, So we could actually see in the Facebook post, for example, what they were saying and how they were framing the visual that they put underneath. So it was actually... Yes, it was about sowing division, but it was much more about creating these like this in-group dynamic. Mm-hmm. So across each and every one of their pages and accounts, so much of the focus was not on like um, sowing societal division where like the LGBT page was told like, hey, you shouldn't like this, you know, this Jesus page that they were running. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was really about culture and pride and creating a very um, kind of... Uh, consolidated communities around particular cultures and particular types of pride. So there's LGBT, some of it was um, ethnic or racial, some of it was political, some of it was regional, there was a page about Texas. So the idea was you would create these groups, you would reinforce camaraderie, you would have a ton of posts saying like, um, we're so proud to be LGBT, we're so proud to be Confederates. Um, you know, or Confederate, you know, uh, descendants of, of Confederates, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there would be this Every now and then you would have a post that was political and it would be framed in the text as, as LGBT people, we believe, or as black people, we can't support Secretary Clinton. Or, you know, um, it was very much like a, we've done all of this work to build up this community. We're all in this in-group. And as members of this in-group, this is how we think about this other thing. 
Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's, um, I really like your reframing there in terms of, hey, it's not about um, necessarily like sowing hate into others. Instead, it is building community, building relationships, building, you know, these tribes, these in-group dynamics, um, building the pride, um, building these, essentially these new ways of um, of distributed trust where back in the day, it's like we, we got our trust from the centralized trusted institutions and now we can get our trust, quote unquote, from a random Facebook group or something like that or a, a Twitter account that we like to follow. And then after you build that trust, then you can start to um, input the, the, the actual ideas that you want to kind of incept in the people um, with that trusted kind of um, um, a substrate that you've created. Does that sound, is that kind of, is that right? That, that, that yeah. way more eloquently than I just put it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Trusted substrate. And I think something that's interesting that you chat about here, though, is this, um, and I noticed this in the, the piece, there's a lot of everything, so much is identity-based um, and not very much is income-based um, or, or, or class-based. Um, and I guess, I guess I would just like to hear your take on um, how you see identity playing a role here um, and, and why it was such a powerful way to, to create these, these groups and dynamics. I think it might just be an easier characteristic to, to segment on. Yeah. Um, I think also just Purely logistically speaking, uh, on Facebook, you have targeting for certain types of demographic characteristics um, in a way that you don't. Like, there's no Facebook ad targeting for. Um, actually, you know, maybe maybe there is for income brackets. I actually don't know. Uh, I've never I've never tried myself. Um, but there are there is most definitely if you look at the targeting that they did use, they ran ads to drive people to the pages until the pages were of sufficient size, presumably that that they got enough organic reach from people sharing out the content and organic joins. Um, so the the ads were uh, were targeted according to race, ethnicity, interest, um, geography, uh, gender, and age. So they, they did, you know, they, so when you have that ability to segment by certain characteristics, you make pages that, uh, that are the correct content to be appealing to, uh, to those targets. That makes sense. I think it's a funny, it's a classic, as you say, it's just like whatever the technological affordances give you, if they give you, um, you know, identity based or, you know, like, like, uh, um, racial based things, well then you use that. And as you say, they, I, I don't know if they have income based stuff. Um, and, but if they do, you might use it, but if they don't, well, then you can't use it. So, um, then they can't use it to, to do their disinformation campaigns. So do you think if we think about these campaigns and we think about, who they were leveraged against. I mean, there's a couple interesting pieces here. One is, um, I, I found something I found interesting was that it sounded like in the in the um, in the report that you that that's online, it, there's a lot of focus on kind of like black and African American audiences, um, and more so than some of these like right leaning audiences. And for me, I found that surprising in terms of the traditional narrative is something that's like, hey, um, Russia changed the election, and how did they change the election? Well, they changed it by kind of incepting um, you know right leaning conservative folks with propaganda. But this your report to some extent, correct me if I'm wrong, says hey, that is true to some extent, but there's also, a, a, there was a lot of focus on like the black community. Is that is that correct to say that or is that true? That, yeah, that's that's mostly accurate. I would say there was, um, there. so the black community was really interesting and, and we felt that it deserved a specific call out because they had 30 pages devoted to, on Facebook uh, and another couple dozen, I, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head on Instagram, devoted to just this one community. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were other ethnic pages. There was a, and um, there was a, a couple Latino pages. There was a Native Americans page. Um, so they had, uh, you know, some awareness of other kind of uh, minority groups that had traditionally had kind of grievances about their acceptance and uh, into, um, you know, their, their experience in American society. But 
I think with the the black community pages were not only uh, were there many of them, but they were extremely tightly integrated. And what I mean by that is uh, for a lot of the right wing pages on Facebook, they were kind of standalone. So if you followed Heart of Texas, they weren't really aggressively trying to push you into their other right wing pages. Uh, If you followed one of the black community targeted pages, they were constantly cross promoting their content. So if you followed one of the more political uh, pages targeting the black community, like Blacktivist, they would be referring in, they would be kind of cross-promoting memes from like their liberation theology pages. So it's important to note, maybe, um, I don't think I said this, that the black community content was not monolithic at all. So each of the pages was had its own sub-focus. So if you were interested in black culture, there was a page for you. If you were interested in... Uh, the Black Baptist experience, there was a page for you, Black Liberation Theology, um, this uh, kind of Egyptology type uh, content, or Nefertiti's community was the name of it. So they had all of these different facets of the Black American experience, so that whatever your particular flavor was, you would find one of their pages. And then they cross-linked them and cross-promoted them. And they also cross-linked and cross-promoted a whole lot of authentic Black media, So it wasn't just um, grabbing a meme and resharing it. It was actually uh, linking out to their content, just doing much more to create this kind of mirage of uh, of interconnectedness so that once you were in one of their one of their page ecosystems, you would find all the rest of them. Mm -hmm. It was was much more integrated for that particular cluster of pages. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that it was and I don't know the exact date and you might know of like whether it was more like black communities were targeted compared to to right-leaning communities but as you said it is the the, the main difference is this like quanti- qualitative texture difference in terms of the 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 tight integration and the cross-posting with communities versus these kind of um right-leaning ones which are more standalone like the texas um you know uh texas su- 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 succeed page was not as connected perhaps to some of the other right-leaning pages um okay that's interesting another piece on this who is it targeted to thing um so how do i know so i was around in 2015 20- 2016. Um, For me, um, as someone who kind of exists more in the realm of the weird kind of rationalist, effective altruist world or whatever, like um, maybe how much, what stuff, how do I know what stuff was targeted to me and and how should I know what was fake or what was real within my own information um, kind of input over those years and even today? It's an interesting question. There were um, Senator Blumenthal brought up in one of the hearings what we called the right to know. So those of us who were kind of, um, you know, activists, I guess, or advocates on the outside saying like, hey, we really need to have some hearings, like the public needs to understand what happened long before this data investigation process happened, just saying like, why, you know, Facebook is estimating 126, I think, million people uh, engaged with this content, shouldn't those people have a right to know? So that was what led to that that thing that they created where you could go and see if you had engaged with mm. an IRA page. Uh, for me, it came up negative. For me, for me, it was blank. Um, I I think that I, I didn't get the sense that there was anything targeting the kind of rationalist or other communities that you mentioned. Nothing that I've seen anyway. <laughs> Definitely not in this I know that in some of the 2018 finds, which of course were not included in this data set, but just things that researchers have found, um, they did have some of the new age spirituality mm-hmm. kind of um, more, uh, you know, astral plane type. Yeah, um, yeah. Integral theorists. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I so think- that, that was in there. I, those were not home runs. <laughs> it, it, uh, it, I mean, I tried to get at that with like illustrations of like the long tail. For every, you know, their their top twenty pages really well. Actually, like they they built um, they they built sizable followings. I've seen other people kind of quantify that um, in the context of uh, of other media channels. So if you look at the right wing pages, how did they compare just to other right wing page media lift on Facebook at that time? And they did perform reasonably well. Um, there was a whole long tail of just like you know, throw it at the wall, see if it sticks. It didn't. They actually evolved away. Like they they were pretty proactive about if it wasn't working, change it. There was one or two accounts where it went through like three or four different topical. Um, topical changes. And they did it like in May each year, like there was one page that changed in May of each year. And I was like, Oh, I guess that guy just, you know, didn't make his numbers or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny too, because as you said, you can AB testing it all. And they're like, okay, what's working, what's not working. Let's put all these tests in parallel and the ones that are working. Great. Let's keep on rocking with them. Um, And it's interesting, as you say, I just, whenever you read something like this, um, you know that you're like, okay, um, my information ecosystem, how do I, how can I trust it? And how can I trust that I'm getting the right information? How can I um, take responsibility for my information ecosystem? How do I know it's fake? What's not? So I definitely, I will personally check out the right to know thing. And that sounds like an interesting, I guess I hope it comes up fake, even though I don't really care either. We'll see. (laughs) Um, A thing that I I want to chat about, one other specific thing on this, on this report before we kind of zoom out to the other piece, how, so you, you talk a little bit about um, the overlap between this uh, the the actual like disinformation campaigns through stuff like Facebook and Twitter and whatever versus kind of the overlap with traditional media and how they were sometimes in sync and not in sync. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So with traditional media, um, one thing that was really interesting to me when I first saw, even before this data set, when I just saw some of the crowd tangle data sets uh, posts that Jonathan Albright and others found that were floating around, there was a... Um, uh, such a huge variance in the quality of the English. And so you would have these posts that like, the, you know, they had trouble with definite articles and definite mm-hmm. articles. Um, the genitive case was all wonky, the possessives. Um, and so that read as, but then there were also these posts that were like perfect flawless English. And then there was kind of a third cluster that were like extremely um, like, I would call it like maybe like pedantic business English, things like, uh, it is quite clear to any observer that Hillary Clinton is a terrible person. Therefore, we must not vote. For <laughs> Furthermore, you know, and, and it was just like, no, you know, it was funny because it was like no American talks like yeah. that, right? Especially not on a meme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or not on a meme page. Exactly. So it was like incong- there's like an incongruity there with um, with the language. But for the highly precise, flawless English that, that just nailed, you know, the right use of um, contractions and just read like an American uh, I, I started uh, Googling those phrases, actually, and found that they had cribbed them um, mostly from news from news sites. Mm-hmm. So we were going to particularly small local news, um, not, not really mainstream, not, not New York Times or WAPO or Fox or anything, uh, but they would go to small local posts and they would grab them. And they would use that as the content over the meme. So it was just a, um, just a crib. And they did that also oftentimes when there were, uh, you know, it, it was, um, I think we've, we've seen from the Mueller indictment and elsewhere that they would, one of their responsibilities was to go and to check, uh, to check the news every day and to decide what they were going to post about. So they did a lot of cribbing from media. And so part of that was to amplify stories that were mission aligned. So, uh, 
this is something that we actually have seen a lot more of in 2018, rather than creating their own content and risk these, these tells with these like English, you know, gaps, mm-hmm. uh, they will actually just kind of grab repurpose and amplify stuff from real Americans. Wow, that's interesting. I think that there's also um, kind of a possibly negative or I mean a positive or a, a reinforcing and possibly negative feedback loop there, which is if you're a local news um, group who is trying to make money in the digital age, which is very hard, um, the things that might start to get amplified are the things that um, are the most, you know, classic, just most outrage focused or most um, aligned with one of these specific super niche groups, because then they might, I guess, um, I don't know if there's actually a feedback loop between, I guess they're just copy pasting the headline though, and then, and then pulling it over into their memes. Okay. That's Huh. That's strange. I feel like maybe one final question on this, which is, is there a, um, so if we think about how much I, I saw that and from an output perspective, you know, 126 million people were affected, you know, through something like Facebook, how much money do you think was put into this by, um, the, the, the people on the other end the people on the other end are Russian, the, like the Russian government or who, who is this, the internet, uh, this- yeah, so it's actually it's not an official uh, entity of the Russian government. It's sort of a, um, a guy who they call Putin's chef, uh, who runs this thing. Who I believe also runs uh, what's known as FAN, the sort of federal news agency, um, or is you know kind of closely affiliated with it. There's a lot of these ties that are not official government, but uh, have have very close ties to uh, to, to Putin's team. Um, the I think with the, you know, I'm, I think I just kind of lost the train of thought. Of how much, I, just, I was wondering how much money um, or like uh, was put in to get again. Thank you. Uh, so there was a recent indictment by the Eastern District Court of Virginia that uh, referred to what's called Project Lockta, which mm. is the apparently the working name for, for the interference in the U.S., and they found that the budget was, I believe, between uh, 10 and $17 million, and they had increased it um, with, uh, with their, you know, they, they were increasing for, for 2018. They considered uh, what they had done to date to be a success, mm-hmm. <laughs> presumably, and, uh, and so they were upping their budget. So the Eastern District indictment goes deep into the, the finances mm-hmm. um, and also has really fascinating insights into, like, their morning stand-up <laughs> and... The ways that they thought about, you know, the ways that they thought about segmenting U.S. audiences. It's really remarkable. They have things in there where they're saying, like, for uh, African-American LGBT, make sure you don't use memes with white people in them, like using black LGBT people. And so it's it's in, like the degree to which um, the, uh, I guess, management is uh, is is controlling um, the, the tenor and the direction of the posts is interesting. They definitely produce content aligned with the regime mm. itself. So, uh, Syria was a huge topic of, uh, you know, which was perplexing to me originally because I thought, you know, candidly, not very many people, not very many regular Americans, especially not ones who are hanging out on like meme yeah. pages are, uh, are super excited to, you know, super informed about Syria. Uh, but they would still stick the Syria content into all the pages and uh, across all of the groups that they targeted. So this was, again, it's very much in alignment with um, with the Kremlin's kind of communication strategy. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's, yeah, it's like um, in, in, you build the trust, you make that trust substrate layer, and then you push the things that both, A, you think might um, create um, turmoil within the United States, and you push things that you want to push as, as as Russia and as Putin, something like Syria. Um, so I think, and as a macro kind of uh, wrap here, you put in 
it's the from you know 2015 to 2016 um you know tens of millions hundreds of millions of of engagements and posts um were created into our digital information ecosystem um and they had a they were usually identity based um they created this trust infrastructure and then started to insert in some of these more polarizing hate speech things um and as you say they are going to they're likely to increase the amount of money um towards this because it was successful um, so let's with that as kind of a wrap on this first section Tell us about this other piece. This There's this piece that you wrote for Ribbon Farm um, called the Digital Maginot Line. And I think as, as we were talking about before the, we started recording, you kind of started this, this Russia investigation. And as you were starting it, you said, ooh, I need to write another piece as well. So could you kind of, kind of tie us into this connection between the two pieces and tell us what is in this other Digital Maginot Line piece? Yeah, so it was an essay I wrote because I was thinking a lot about um, what had happened the fact that increasingly it became obvious that anyone could do this, you know, originally when we looked at 2016, uh, we thought that there were a lot of like domestic shit posters, domestic kind of dirty mm-hmm. tricks and botnets and so on and so forth. Realized that, you know, Russia was right in there along with them. A lot of the accounts actually in the Twitter data set, um, some of the most virulent racist troll accounts in there had gab profiles also, like they were just right in there looking like, you know, like shit posting alt-right Americans. Um, so the thing that was, you know, you, you had, and pr- previously I should also maybe caveat that I had done past work with terrorists. So looking at ISIS propaganda online and how ISIS used uh, Twitter as a recruiting platform, um, looked at a lot of things related to conspiratorial communities online, how YouTube really acts as an amplifier for this type of content. So there was just this sense that the entire information ecosystem was broken and that we were in this like kind of war of all against all, you know, <laughs> just anybody, anybody could go and do it. Um, and there was, we were, you know, at the same time that we were finally beginning to talk about solutions, we were looking at like the tactics of 2016, like botnets. And so in California, where I am, we had some legislation introduced specifically to try to mandate bot disclosure. Um, it was ineffectual and a little bit ridiculous in the sense that it required not the platforms to be responsible, but it required like the creator of the bot to disclose and I just remember thinking like, this is absolutely ludicrous. Like, you know, you're telling somebody who is like inclined to run a mass trolling operation, like, no, 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 you've got to register, you know? So it was just a, a sense that we hadn't fully internalized like what we were up against. And we were still thinking about this very much as a um, individual, like isolated attacks when in reality, this was just an information ecosystem where anyone could do this. And as I was doing the Russia investigation, of course, the Iran stuff broke. So the fact that there was, you know, the FireEye investigation, that there had been this um, very large Iranian uh, propaganda and disinformation network targeting Americans as well. So it kind of further reinforced it. And I wanted to try to maybe shift the thinking a little bit. We're all wary of the war metaphor, right? I know that, that the you know, when you say information war, it sounds vaguely hysterical. And for a long time, I felt kind of like Chicken Little when I would say like, you know, <laughs> something really wrong on the internet, guys. You know? <laughs> there's, there's this stuff isn't good, you know, and I don't think we're giving it the credence it deserves. And so that was an unfortunate thing to be very, very right about. But I, I felt like I had to maybe shift the thinking and, and and, you know, the, the challenge here is that the people that we're kind of up against, so to speak, um, do think of it as an information war. Like, it's in their docs, you know? 
<laughs> this is how Project Lakta thinks of itself, right? It's a kind of an ongoing information war against America. And there's no uh, deterrence or anything. There's no none of the mechanisms that we would normally have in place to to say like we're you know we can't tolerate this like that just doesn't exist in in information operations. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, and as you say, so there's this massive. Um, as you're starting to dive into all of your your various different kinds of research, you're saying, hey, and, and then the responses were too much at the tactical level. But really, as you're saying, it's our information infrastructure, it's our sense-making systems, it's these kinds of things that are kind of drastically changing. Um, and and the people who are actively trying to to push to push these systems are thinking of it like a war. So we should think of it, start to think of it like that, and not just like some random shit posters on the internet. Um, and as a part of this, the, the the metaphor, and I actually didn't know this before reading your piece. There's this Maginot Line, which was um, which France put up after World War One as this thing in between France and Germany, as they thought it was going to be a really good defense um, if Germany tried to get into France in the future. Um, but in fact, it was kind of an old school mindset in that it was um, it, it didn't it clearly didn't stop Germany from invading France and it didn't stop them because the um, the tactics had changed in the future so they didn't use the same trench war their warfare style things they, they were able to go around this in this in a way that the French hadn't anticipated before so that's what we mean to, that's what Renee means by this digital Maginot line it's like hey um, you can do these random small tactics um, but you have to kind of zoom out to the macro infrastructure and the macro information ecosystem to actually make change here so so with that as kind of a high level piece, do you think, I think something that's super interesting here is thinking about um, who, or, or rather thinking about when we think about what this war, what the battlefield of this war is, um, I think you do a really good job of saying the war is not physical stuff. The war is our mind. So t- tell us more about, about where the war is taking place. So I think it's the, the you know, we've also, we've always talked about wars having, you know, strategic goals like regime change and things. And they do in fact have particular regimes that they want to see come to power, but they, rather than going about doing that in an old fashioned way, they, uh, with, you know, with tanks and invasions, uh, they instead really just go for the minds of people. How do we shift the Overton window? The stuff that we talked about in the first half of the segment with, um, you know, how do you, uh, create these, 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 communities, make them receptive to propaganda, develop relationships, uh, and then slide in the thing that you want to socialize. And so that's where it becomes, uh, it's so insidious, people don't really see it happening. And so it, it, it's, event, it's, it's content presented to you by people who you think are like you. And so it's very insidious, but people are, their guard is not raised. They're not thinking about this as like, oh, I should be skeptical. Uh, they, they see it as information being transmitted from a community member. So it, it's a lot of what's happening is like the the recasting of, of old school espionage tactics, um, old school propaganda tactics, and just recognizing that the internet is now, uh, it, it provides much more opportunity for velocity, for virality, for direct targeting. Uh, so this is now a very, very effective means of reaching citizens, whereas previously in the olden days, reaching citizens, you know, yeah, you could get your propaganda on the radio. Maybe you could get a couple articles in here and there. Uh, but this is just a way to, you, there are no gatekeepers, so you can just reach people extremely directly, and that's what's yep, happening. Yep, exactly. And I think it is, and and the people, the weird thing, as you say, is that people don't even know that they're being reached, you know, because they're being talked to by people that they trust, that they think are like them, um, and, and then their minds are therefore changing based off of this. Um, yeah, well, I like 
you think it's like some weird kind of when we imagine it it's only things that you could that only like the uh, cia or the whatever could do within you know like south america and they could like implant these people into the administration and then those people would eventually get trust and then change things over time but now you can just do it through like facebook ads now so it's a different vibe um another different vibe that you mentioned is the difference between the you know the war is not when we think about cyber war we think of it as kind of like an infrastructure based war um where you say hey um the war is about making sure our machines are safe uh, kind of so could you talk more about that and like the fight over like physical um like cyber infrastructure versus uh this new like mines being the war yeah, this was informed in part by some of the stuff that I looked at in 2015 with the ISIS, uh, the ISIS operation. Basically, that how do we how do we deal with ISIS propaganda on the internet? Um, it was the the idea that we weren't really organized. There was no whole of government strategy where someone was responsible for this. So there was kind of this scramble um, where we were sort of caught lying down. And it was interesting because from 2012 to 2015, there was actually a DARPA program called Social Media and Strategic Communications. And it's an, you know, the, a lot of the research from it is open source and you can go and Google it and, and, and see what they, what they studied. But they actually studied, like, can you do bot detection? Um, can you, you know, how, what happens when propaganda on the Internet becomes a major uh, major source of influence, right? And so there was this recognition within DARPA that uh, that we needed to be paying attention to these things, presumably within some facets of the Defense Department. But none of that ever carried through to any kind of uh, action. And at the time, funny enough, in 2015, the DARPA program was shut down because there was this idea that like the very premise was ridiculous. And why was Uncle Sam paying attention to communications on the internet? How creepy was that? You know. <laughs> and then similarly with ISIS, there was the added challenge of the civil the civil libertarian uh, groups who would say things like, "Well, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter," and if we take down ISIS, good lord, what a slippery slope that's going to be. Um, and so there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, support for doing nothing, really. And so at the time when when we possibly had the best chance to, you know, or when we should have started thinking about this, we just weren't there. And so thinking about what, meanwhile, by contrast, um, we have extremely robust, um, both, you know, kind of articulated doctrines and um, and entities within the government and the intelligence community that are specifically you know, tasked with dealing with infrastructure hacks and what we would more traditionally think of as cyber war. So influence operations, information operations, that's really just been sort of uh, off to the side. It hasn't really been updated in any material way. And when we had the chance to start those updates in 2015, you know, the horse had kind of already left the barn by that point. Yeah, I think, and and going more on this this ISIS piece, I think it's interesting. And you, you're talking about like the the, the civil, li- and I come a lot from the cryptocurrency world. And so there's a bunch of libertarian types over there. And there's also, you know, I find myself moderately aligned with some of the things that like the free speech advocates and the intellectual dark web folks sometimes. Um, and thinking about, you know, free speech on the internet and deplatforming and curation, I, you have a really good piece in um, a really good section in, in this article about you know, liberal means and illiberal ends. So could you talk more about how you see free speech on the internet and how it kind of overlaps with these new information ecosystems? Yeah, sure. So I think nobody has, has one of the real challenges here is that 
liberal democratic societies are disproportionately impacted by this because of that commitment, right? Because we are so reluctant to take anything down once it's gone up, because we are uh, so focused on ensuring that this freedom of expression remains sacred. And, and, and that's very interesting because that is kind of an asymmetric vulnerability that we have. Whereas if there were, if this were happening in the other direction, the, you know, authoritarian governments would just shut off the internet or they would just shut off the page, you know, it's censorship, right? That that's, uh, you know, so, so we can't really be, we can't really do this in return very effectively. Um, so the challenge here is like, how do we think about moderation and how do we think about, um, the fact that there are, bad actors who are actively working to ensure that their content winds up in front of the people who are most receptive to it. Uh, and that this is, this is th- that the ecosystem is in fact designed to enable just that thing because that's how uh, advertisers work because, because the system is designed to ensure that advertisers can get their message in front of just the right people. So it's an interesting challenge. I think one of the things that I look at and think about a lot is can we, how do we, how do we quantify like signatures of inauthenticity? Because authenticity is actually, it's the idea that you have a right to know that the person or, you know, or entity that is speaking to you is what they claim to be. And that's like more of like a, a trust function almost. And so this is where platforms under their terms of service do have the capability to come in and say, like, we are going to check for authenticity. And according to our terms of service on Facebook, you have to be accurately representing yourself with your real name. And if you're not, your content comes down. You know, Twitter is a little more of kind of the Wild West with that sort of stuff. But there is at least now uh, more cognizance on Twitter that deliberate brigading to get a message amplified artificially is in fact a problem. It's not just a side effect. It's something that they actually have to reckon with. So we try to get at what are the signatures of inauthenticity and what does inauthentic distribution look like in particular so that there is no risk of, um, of taking something down because of the content. So nobody is saying like, oh gosh, I really don't like this conservative keyword or this liberal keyword. Uh, instead, it's this cluster of accounts is simultaneous. There, there is evidence that it is working in coordination uh, in, a, in, in a way that seems like a significant aberration. And so we will flag that, encapsulate it, and probably remove it. And so that's where I think we have that option. The other area where I think the platforms do bear more responsibility is the idea of curation. So you have never, you know, freedom of speech has never included this right to freedom of reach, so to speak, right? There's no right to artificial or free amplification. It's you have, you know, you can say what you want. Speech has never included the privilege of like you being given a megaphone. So when we think about what platforms are curating, um, the idea is, you know, perhaps when we look at things like the recommendation engines, when we look at uh, things like um, like the groups that Facebook suggests, maybe there should be a little bit more editorial oversight on you know on on the on behalf of the platform where they take different types of factors into account to decide what they're going to proactively recommend. So if you were to have you know if you have a niche interest that perhaps is you know. Um, you know, let's use anti-vaxxers as an example, right? Nobody's advocating for anti-vaxxers to be wiped off Facebook, but maybe they get pulled out of the uh, the suggestions algorithm. Maybe you have to actually go and type in anti-vax in order to to find your find your content. So there's, I think, a lot of different ways that we think about how information is weighted, how information is surfaced, 
Um, these algorithms are not neutral. They've never been neutral. So what, what, what should we be waiting for, I think, at this point, waiting uh, in the W-E-I-G-H-T <laughs> <Nice>. sense? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so there's a lot of juicy stuff there. I think, um, A, as you said at the front, the, um, the democratic societies have kind of a, a asymmetric uh, weak point here, which is when we're like, hey, let all the free, free speech go wherever it wants to go. Um, and that, as you say, like that may have made sense in a world in which, you know, you have the freedom of free speech, but not the freedom of reach. Um, and it also may have made sense in a world in which you could, but we, we've also, freedom of speech is a good um, kind of, uh, it's a good way to say like a, from a deontological, deontological perspective or kind of a norms-based perspective, like, hey, freedom of speech is a good thing, but we should in theory, take a bit of a consequentialist perspective and say, hey, what is the actual outcome? So, for example, you can't do safe, you you don't have free speech when you say fire in a crowded theater and it kills a bunch of people. Um, then they say, well, that was on you, even though you can say whatever you want to say, but here it like killed a bunch of people. So I think starting to push more towards that realm in the um, information ecosystem makes sense. Um, and with the signatures of authenticity. I think that that's interesting. And as you say, it's kind of a, instead of a political piece, it is instead kind of a meta level network piece where you say, hey, these nodes are communicating in these ways. It's kind of from a metadata perspective, um, we think that this shows XYZ about their authenticity and that they're actually this coordinated attack or whatever. Um, so I think that's interesting. Yeah, and I think that the the platforms, um, as you say, they've never been neutral. Um, there are they code in the algorithms for how things pull up on your feed, um, and and thinking more deeply about what we want to shape those feeds to look like seems good. Um, and 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 trying to, if at all possible, um, organize around metrics like authenticity or whatever seems good. So I guess. When with a final wrap-up piece here as a final question. Um, <laughs> so we have, um, you know, Russia spending tens of millions of dollars um, pushing um, information stuff into our uh, ecosystem to polarize us. Um, we have an information ecosystem these days where our sense-making is um, drastically, uh, is decreased in various ways with our new distributed trust. Um, and we're in this new new war period, this new information war period. What can, and I know that um, a lot of people like to focus on some of the platforms and they say, hey, what can the platforms do? What are they incentivized to do? Whatever. Um, but what do you think for you as an, like an individual, um, either what do you do or what do you recommend people do when they're confronted with this new information landscape? How should they um, try to make sure that their information inputs are as beautiful and clean and as you know well-meaning towards the world as possible? I think it's really it's really tough. I mean, I one of the reasons I was excited that the Senate did uh, have this report released publicly was that it would help people see what it looks like. Um, you know, <laughs> hoping that people go look at it um, in in the sense of uh, this looks like content I've seen before, right? That's the reaction you kind of want people to have where they realize that um, people are trying to influence you, right? People are pushing out content designed to make you feel a certain way, get riled up, taking the extra second to to search, you know, even Snopes or a fact check site to see if the more sensational political content is real, uh, thinking about what is this? You know, I there's a. It's interesting that there's such a, a high degree of trust in citizen journalism, right? This idea of like the fifth estate, the the lowly blogger taking on the you know the, um, the versus the behemoths, the titans of, of of industry and media that are totally untrustworthy as they as they believe. And then when you look at what the Internet Research Agency did, it created pages that looked like like middling quality fifth estate kind of stuff. So. I, I hope that it does make people think a little bit more about what the hyper-partisan page that they've liked on Facebook is. You know, you, you don't want to create 
cynicism where people believe that every single um, uh, every single piece of content or every single person they engage with is 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 not real. That's one of the main problems here. The goal of disinformation is is not really it's not to swing an election. It's to it's to make people lose faith in their ability to tell fact from fiction, to know what's real and what's not real, and in hopes that they just eventually give up and kind of, you know, take their information from the one source that they personally have decided is credible, whether it is or isn't. So that's, that's where we are. That's why I think it's so critical that really it's the platforms rather than individuals um, who are the first line of defense here. It's the platforms that have to be getting the information ecosystem more under control in terms of that authenticity uh, so that people don't find themselves in the position of constantly having to be, you know, looking for secret signs of Russian trolls on every single page they encounter. I think that's a bad future. <laughs> I think we might disagree. I mean, I think that, um, what would I say? I mean, I guess that in, uh, I mean, it's as, as it's clearly both that you both want the platforms to be um, uh, actively and more consciously trying to, uh, trying to make the feeds more delicious and beautiful. And I think that the, as you say, it's a bad world where you go onto the internet and you, you, you're worried about being gaslighted all the time. You don't know what's real, what's false here, what's a Russian troll, what's not, um, who can I trust? Um, so yeah, I, I do agree that that's a bad, a bad situation. And I guess, the, but I do like I I just I guess I like it when I when people as individuals take deep responsibility for their own information inputs. Um, I guess that would be the thing that I really like, and I would love for the platforms to um, be more aggressive about saying, "Hey, we are um, curating a bunch of news for lots and lots of people." Um, <laughs> I totally get it. I totally get it. I don't mean that um, the uh, I know this is this is the question that I get a lot, which is like. Um, particularly people who were like, well, if you think Facebook has screwed up for this long, why, why do you think it's going to get it right now? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I'm very sympathetic. Like, I understand this is a this is a tough question. It's just the side that I've kind of come down on personally, and that's in part because I think that there's this idea that you know media literacy will save us all. Um, one of the you know there's there's I don't, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 37. I remember being taught that like Wikipedia is not a source, right? And and yet now here is YouTube using Wikipedia as its source for for verifying whether some crackpot conspiracy theory video is accurate or not right so oh sorry my my buzzer just went off there um so i think that's one of the interesting uh like evolutions in how we think about what is a good source on the internet but really another challenge is that a lot of the a lot of the people who um kind of fall victim to this stuff are older people and so there's a when we talk about media literacy um, it, it's actually like, how do you reach people who are like a generation or two above uh, when the internet kind of, you know, didn't didn't grow up as digital natives? I think that's an interesting question. And then the other challenge with media literacy is it actually does use this whole like question everything kind of narrative, which uh, <laughs> which is also funny enough, the exact language that conspiratorial communities use too, right? Question everything. The earth is flat, you know? <laughs> So, how, so where where is the you know where is the happy medium where we like increase uh, the ability of, of of people to be uh, to be cognizant of and and to be a little bit more savvy when it comes to these types of things, um, while at the same time recognizing that this stuff looks real. I mean, I've looked at one hundred and seventy five thousand Russian memes at this point. You laugh at some of them; they're really good. They're funny. That's the thing. Everyone thinks it's like the shit content. It's not at all. It's actually it's very well targeted. The meme page stuff yeah. is really funny. You know, I, I think that's where it's hard, right? It's it's um, you don't look at that and think like ha 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 Russian troll. 
Like you just think, oh yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think a, a so, lot of good stuff. In general, I think that if our listeners are listening, they should trust Renee and not me, to be honest, about, hey, media literacy, good, but not fix everything. Let's make sure the platforms are held accountable for the the their curation, their information curation mechanisms and systems. <laughs> I really like your example of Wikipedia as to never trust Wikipedia 10 years ago. And now it is used as the, the trusted voice on YouTube to, um, to say, no, the conspiracy theory is wrong. Here's what Wikipedia said. That's hilarious. That's a good um, back and forth. So, um, if by the way, listeners, if you want to check out Renee, a if you go, you can go to newknowledge.com.org.com um, to check out the disinformation report. You can also um, go to ribbonfarm.com or type in the digital Maginot line to check out her other piece. Um, and uh, Renee, how can people find you on Twitter? Uh, my handle's no upside. That's what's in our future. Um, <laughs> so, um, Renee, thank you for being on the show. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks so much for having me.